Turn with me to John chapter 16. We'll read verses 12 through 22 together. John 16, verses 12 through 22. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. A little while, and you will no longer see Me. And again a little while, and you will see Me. Some of His disciples then said to one another, What is this thing He is telling us? A little while, and you will not see Me. And again a little while, and you will see Me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that He says a little while? We do not know what He's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question Him and He said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see Me and again a little while and you will see Me? Truly, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, what precious words. Thank You, Jesus, for not only having said these some 2,000 years ago, but having them recorded such that we can enjoy them and learn from them even this morning. I pray You would make us so attentive. I pray that we would be able to receive what you have to say. I know that that ability is a gift from you. The ability to spiritually discern spiritual truth is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray even right now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe. I pray for those in our congregation this morning who are presently still enemies of the cross, are presently not in Jesus, for they have not repented nor placed their faith in Him, I pray that even this day You would save them. That You would work a miracle. Because Lord, that's the only way any of us can be saved is a miraculous intervention. You working upon a hardened heart, breaking up the hard places and making it soft and pliable, and then able to receive the Word implanted which is able to save the soul. We pray that You would do that marvelous work in our midst today. And that You would receive all the glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. John 16, verses 12-22 through 22. Sorrow followed by everlasting joy. Sorrow followed by everlasting joy. Some things are easier said than done. Some things are easier said than done. The story is told about a few mice that had a meeting. They wanted to figure out what to do with their most dreaded enemy, the cat. Several mice spoke, proposing a variety of solutions But then a very young mouse stood up and announced that he had a plan. That cat is so very dangerous, said the young mouse, because she's sly and sneaky. 
she tiptoes along on those little padded paws. Why, we never even hear her coming. The assembled mice nodded in agreement. My suggestion, continued the young mouse, is that we tie a bell around the cat's neck. That way we can hear when she's trying to sneak up on us. We'd always have time to run and hide. The meeting of mice burst out into applause. It was a wonderful idea and it was generally agreed. But then a little old mouse stood up slowly. He had the strain to be heard over the cheers of all the rest of the mouse mice. He said, the young mouse's idea sounds good, but now we have a brand new problem. Who will hang the bell on the cat? You see, in order for the mice to enjoy the benefit of an advanced warning system against the cat, someone would need to step forward at the risk of his or her own life. Some of the best benefits that come to us only come through great acts of heroism and sacrifice and suffering. The liberty and freedom that we enjoy as Americans was purchased at great cost. And it can only be maintained at great cost. So we shouldn't be surprised that the best blessing that a man can ever receive only comes to us at great cost. What blessing of which do I speak? I speak of the blessing of the forgiveness of our sins and being granted eternal life. While forgiveness comes to us free, it came at the cost of Jesus' own life. This was a cost that Jesus willingly laid down on behalf of the sheep. He saw us, and He saw us in our helpless state. He laid down His life for our soul's sake. You see, we enjoy the benefit of living after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. For that matter, we have the blessing of holding in our hands the entirety of the Scriptures. We live after the first coming of Jesus, and we have the whole canon before us. So when we read passages such as John 16, verses 12-22, we do so in light of what we know now. And then when Jesus spoke those words, He would that very night be arrested. Within hours, He would receive a sham of a trial. He would be subsequently crucified and buried. But then he would rise again. You see, the disciples lacked all of this understanding. All they could see and all they were hearing from Jesus in this pretty much last of discourses was that trouble was on the horizon. Pain and suffering were upon them. Some preparation is required. There were many more things that Jesus wished to tell His disciples on this occasion, but He chose to withhold some things because of His perception of what they were prepared to hear. Jesus, again, demonstrates the power of preparation. He makes some statements at times without a whole lot of explanation. He gives, though, enough that upon later reflection, everything seems to make so much sense. That's why for us, as we read through the New Testament, we're like, oh, I know exactly what Jesus is talking about there. But we have the blessing of being able to look back hindsight. You see, the disciples didn't have that blessing at the time. So he often said things that evoked further questions. And for those who were not interested, they just went on their way without ever understanding what Jesus said. We were in a teacher in service this past week and Kathy Rabe came and uh, did some teaching for our teachers here. She assigned us Matthew 13 and to read through that chapter. And one of the questions that was posed to us is, why does Jesus teach in parables? Why does He teach the way that He does? Well, the disciples even came to Jesus to ask Him that very question. Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus says to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they 
understand. And then Jesus says a little later in the passage, he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. Jesus knows how we learn. And we don't learn about things that we don't care about. If you have absolutely no care for the subject, you will not listen to it. As a matter of fact, right here this morning, if you're sitting here and you don't love Jesus and you have no idea why you're here and you don't think that the Bible is God's word, I wouldn't be surprised if you just tuned out everything I had to say. You have no interest, no care in what we're talking about. Jesus says, blessed are you if you have eyes to see. Blessed are you if you've been given ears to hear. If you have no questions, you'll never care about the answers to questions that are posed. They'll just fall to the ground without having any impact on our minds or hearts. Ears have to be opened before you can hear. A mouth must be opened in order to be nourished. Eyes must be opened in order to see. A mind must be attentive in order to listen and receive. A heart has to be softened in order to care. Emotions have to be awakened in order to feel. Jesus says to His disciples on this occasion, I have more that I'd like to say to you, verse 12. But you cannot bear them now. I have more that I'd like to tell you. But you cannot handle it right now. You cannot bear it right now. You cannot understand it right now. Perhaps you've been in a situation like that before with, with a child. You have more that you'd like to tell the child, but you know that those words will just fall on deaf ears. They don't have the comprehension to understand what you're getting at. Or their present state of mind is not able to receive what you have to say to them. Certainly we've had this experience with other adults, sometimes co-workers or bosses or employees. Where you might feel, I have more that I'd like to say, but you can't bear what I have to say. What are the reasons why someone might not be able to bear something? What could be behind Jesus saying this? This this question is kind of like perplexed me as I read this passage. What does he mean? His disciples cannot bear the words he'd like to share with them. They're missing out on something here that he would like to say to them, but he can't because they can't bear it. So I did a little brainstorming. What are ways, what are things that prevent us from being able to receive from someone else, especially in the area of teaching? Well, here's a list. Number one, we could be suffering from a physical impairment. This seems like the most obvious one. Let's say that I'm trying to talk to a deaf person. Let's say I'm trying to talk with a deaf, blind person. Maybe some of you are like, oh, I could read, they could read your lips maybe. Let's say they're blind and deaf. Communication becomes very difficult with someone in that state. In fact, in order to communicate with them, you have to make use of the remaining senses, right? Touch, taste, smell. How often have you constructed a lesson based purely upon smell? How often have you done a lesson purely based upon Touch. That one maybe a little bit more. How about taste? Very few of us are skilled in those arenas, those mediums of exchange. So that could prevent you from being able to receive something. That seems quite obvious, though. What's another way? Well, we could be limited by a language barrier. And the language barrier can be because we speak different languages, literally. Like I'm speaking to someone who's from France, and I don't know, I can't remember a lick of my high school French. You know, and so I say bonjour, and that's about it. Je m'appelle, Jess. You know, that's about all I got. And we're done. I don't even know how to ask how to go to the bathroom. So, you know, I, we're going to have no communication between one another because we speak different languages. But sometimes we might even speak the same language, uh, like both these English speakers. But I might still have a language barrier because our vocabulary is not appropriate. I could be throwing out some words that perhaps the other person isn't familiar with. I mean, how much do you take away from a discussion that revolves around a subject about which you lack definitions for the words being used? You're just lost. The whole thing just goes over your head, or after a while you just cease trying to listen. This kind of, this kind of um, brings me to a third reason why we might not be able to bear something. It's akin to that, and it's the idea that we could be limited by lack of knowledge or experience or understanding. 
You know, if somebody goes on this marvelous trek, you know, around the Grand Canyon, they start describing that experience. If I haven't had the experience, which I haven't, I hope one day to go to Grand Canyon, but if I haven't had the experience, I can listen to the words, but it's not quite the same as if I had been there, right? There's some things that if you haven't been there, you just don't quite get it. There are other things where it's just a lack of background contextual knowledge, which makes it very, very difficult. I attended a couple of Christian classical conferences this past summer, and I realized in listening in on conversations, whenever a discussion arose about classical literature that I myself have not read, I felt like a dog underneath you know, the table picking up scraps from this marvelous feast that was happening above me, but I had not a clue as to what they were talking about. Right There I am. Having to admit my ignorance. We all have realms of knowledge of which we have some versatility and others are somewhat clueless about. It's not only doctors and lawyers and accountants and engineers that have their own lingo. So do carpenters and mechanics and sports enthusiasts, gamers, I throw in there, chess experts, you know, there's a, there's a language, there's a language in each of these. And if you're familiar with the subject, you have a care, a love, an affection for the subject, then you're in the discussion. But if you don't, you're lost. And if the person discussing it doesn't come down to a level where you can understand it, then the whole discussion's lost on you. And at some point you just, again, are not able to bear it. You might say that out loud, or you might just feel it inside. I cannot bear this conversation. I'm ready to move on. Have you ever thought before that you knew something pretty well, only to meet someone who knew that subject so much better than you that you all of a sudden realize, I don't know much about that subject? Certainly, we've, had, we've all had moments like that. Those are always really good moments. I think God humbles us greatly in those moments when we think, wow, I'm an expert in this field. And then you talk to somebody like, I don't know anything in this field. You see, the reason why is because we learn the unknown from the known. In order to establish progress forward, you have to have a starting place of understanding. You have to keep moving until you find a place of understanding. And now we can move towards the non-understood. But if you start from something that you don't understand, you just continue to not understand. How many of you experienced this in math class going through school? Like, I'm still struggling with my multiplication tables, and now you're giving me calculus. You know, I'm, I'm lost. Because I don't have a place of common understanding to move towards that which I can then hopefully learn to understand. We need sometimes contextual preparation. It helps us to understand what's going on. The fourth thing that can limit us, cause us to not bear something. We could be limited by distractions of mind. We could lack attentiveness. Now, our culture today has gone to great lengths to diagnose a large percentage of children with ADD, ADHD. And while it may be true that some children do suffer from hormonal imbalances and chemical imbalances and all the rest, some of this could be due to all sorts of problems. It's also true that attention is something of a discipline to be learned with which everyone, including adults, struggle. Attention is hard work. Have you been to a conference before and you were listening to teaching throughout like a whole day? A whole day of attending to teaching. have been to some you know, pastor's retreats before and it's marvelous preaching. Amazing preaching. But you listen to four messages and then have other breakout sessions and discussion. You get to the end of the day you feel exhausted. <laughs> like, I wasn't even preaching. I'm like worn out. It's hard work to attend to something. It takes energy to do so. We're inundated day in, day out with 30-second sound bites and fast-paced moving images that are all meant to capture our attention away from anything else that's going on. But you live in a world of 30-second sound bites and everyone trying to capture your attention. What is it? It's distraction. And it's all around us. We have a hard time sitting still, don't we? It's not just our kids who have walked out here. We have a hard time sitting still. You can admit it. I have a hard time sitting still. Sometimes we like patience. The patience needed to attend to something and listen carefully. It's hard work. 
But as with all things worth doing, it's worth our strongest efforts to give our undivided attention to that which is worthy of that sort of attention. I wonder if it's any of these things. Was it the disciples lacked background knowledge? Did they have a physical impairment? Were they distracted right now? So Jesus says, you're not able to bear what I would like to say to you otherwise. How about a fifth thing? We could be limited by unrepentant sin and pride. You won't learn something from someone if you think you already know it all. I'm I'm sure none of us have ever met the know-it-all. And I'm sure that nobody's pointing at themselves as the know-it-all, right? I mean, because if I know it, I just know it. We all struggle with pride, don't we? Is it possible that we're unable to receive or bear some news or words because our hearts are hard and stubborn to anything that would involve us humbling ourselves? It's difficult to admit ignorance, isn't it? It's hard. Sometimes the biggest struggles that happen in tutoring with children is their refusal to admit that they don't know. Right? They, they don't want to admit that. And as adults, we're all the worse because we're older. We should already know these things, right? We need to be humbled and admit our ignorance. And sometimes it's, an, it's a pride thing over what we don't know. Sometimes it's a we're clinging to sin. We, we refuse to repent. We refuse to cry out for help. No matter how erudite you are, no matter how knowledgeable of a subject you are or attentive you are, if you refuse to admit your ignorance, if you refuse to admit that you're sometimes in error, or in my case, many times in error, you're not ready to receive correction. And you won't learn. You will not be able to bear what's being told to you. Listen to the Proverbs. This is just a smattering of some of them. Proverbs 12.15. Proverbs 12.15 The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The fool thinks he's got it all together. The wise man listens. Proverbs 14.16 A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. Proverbs 15.5 A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Sometimes you ever felt that way? I've been like beaten a hundred times before I finally learned that lesson. I'm still struggling with it, right? Proverbs 23.9 Do not speak in the hearing of a fool or he will, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. <laughs> Don't speak in the hearing of a fool for the fool will despise the wisdom of your words. I wonder how often that was the principle that Jesus was going on. Is that what's going on here? Were the disciples unrepentant? Were they arrogant or prideful? We've got a couple more. Perhaps you can't receive something because you're limited by emotional overload and weakness. Have you ever gotten to a point like that? It's possible that someone is unable to hear something due to current emotional experiences. And a wise and loving teacher knows how much to say and what to withhold when tending to those who are experiencing sorrow and grief and confusion and heartache. Because often when somebody's in the middle of that, they're not wanting a whole lot of words from you. As much as you think you can solve all their problems with your magical words. Jesus has already shown great sympathy for the emotional state of His disciples. We know that for sure. This whole text, uh, John 14.1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus is concerned about their hearts. John 14.27, Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. Right before this, John 16.6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. See, Jesus is so compassionate and caring with His disciples. He's giving this like last words to them. He keeps telling them, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be fearful. Don't let your heart be troubled. 
I told you these things, and now sorrow's filled your heart. But I didn't tell it to you that you'd be sorrowful. I told it to you that you would rejoice in the benefit that's coming to you. And then Jesus says, I have more I'd like to say. But you can't bear it right now. He's been giving some pretty heavy information. It could be that added details at this point would not be helpful to the disciples in their present state. At a latter time, though, further things that might need to be said. So how can Jesus hold these things back? Well, Jesus knows that the training of these men will not conclude with His departure. How can He have confidence that He can leave these men without everything that He wanted to tell them? Because He knows He's sending someone else that's going to continue the work. He has confidence in that. On any given Sunday, no preacher anywhere can give all of his people everything he'd like to say. How do you rest calm in the midst of that? Jesus rested calm because he knew that ultimately there was another that he was sending that would give his men all the truth. Can I mention, though, another thing that might prevent us from being able to receive? Maybe the disciples, this is also something that's... I think that there's certainly something emotional going on here. And it could be part of what Jesus is saying. But I think there's another element here, too. And we've seen it. It kind of comes up every once in a while throughout the Gospel accounts anyway. And that is, you might not be able to receive something because you're limited by spiritual imperceptions. You're not able to see things spiritually. You're lacking an ability. This is akin to the physical ability of being able to see or hear, but this is in the spiritual realm, a lack of spiritual understanding. The disciples were unable to understand the significance of what Jesus was about to do on that side of the cross. It wouldn't be until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the disciples would then get it. Why? They needed spiritual help. John 2. The Jews say to Jesus, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answers to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said to themselves, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now listen to this. This is now John giving us an explanation Remember, writing after all of these events. So here's now a commentary from John. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the, the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, this is John says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus gave enough information such that in retrospect they would go back and remember it and go, Aha! I now have it! They couldn't understand it then. They lacked the experience of having seen and been eyewitnesses and testimony to what had happened. They also lacked the Holy Spirit. But later on, they would look back at that moment and it would become very, very clear. Another example in John. John 12. Verses 12 through 16. John 12, verses 12 through 16. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. A.W. Pink says, never can we be sufficiently thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Though our blessed Savior is in heaven, 
We have a divine person with us on earth. A person who quickens us. Who indwells us. Who loves us. Who leads us. Who gives us assurance of sonship. Who helps our infirmities by making intercession for us. And who has sealed us until the day of redemption. Jesus says, you can't bear it all right now. Perhaps partly because of your emotional state. But I think further here because they couldn't really get it. And so there's going to be implications that are going to become come to you, but it's going to come after I've departed. How can he be so sure of this? Because he's sending the Holy Spirit who would literally speak words that came from Jesus, which in turn, as Jesus has explained repeatedly, originate from the Father. He says, he's going to speak words from me. And by the way, that's okay because all the words I have are from the Father. The Holy Spirit's going to come and speak my words. And my words were the Father's words. He's going to continue that work. There's complete unity in the Trinity. Three distinct persons, one God, each fulfilling distinct roles, but each co-eternal and co-equal. Jesus has no concerns about the things needful to the disciples being taught to them because He knows He's sending the Holy Spirit who's going to continue that work. Think about it. Jesus already said about Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? I am the truth, Jesus says. And who's He sending to the disciples? The Spirit of truth. I am the truth, and I'm sending to you the Spirit of truth. He would work the Holy Spirit to make much of Jesus, as Jesus lived to make much of God the Father. He says He's going to bring these things to bear upon your heart. He's going to provide you with understanding. The Holy Spirit would come and grant this further understanding of what Jesus had taught and what Jesus had done. He would impart further insight into the person and work of Christ. Jesus is saying, He's going to take from My words. He's going to take from who I am and He's going to disclose that to you. The Holy Spirit brings home the meaning and significance of Jesus' life and ministry to the disciples. He, catch this. He's not bringing a new message that originates in Himself. The Holy Spirit is bringing a message that is in Jesus. He's applying that to the disciples' lives. He's bringing these things to mind. I think what we're seeing in John, we have these little commentary parentheticals. John's saying, we didn't get it then, but we get it now. And how's that happening? Jesus is explaining it right here. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth. He'll lead you into all truth. He's going to give you understanding on these things. He's going to connect the dots for you. You'll have those light bulb aha moments. Oh, this is another of those times. Jesus did this. And certainly, every time that happens in the Gospels are not always commentated on. In other words, it's not every time it's like, oh, wow, that was a connection to Jesus from the Old Testament. He doesn't always say that. But it's evident that's what's going on. Because we read the fulfillment of prophecy in the life of Jesus. Some might ask, how is it possible for God the Holy Spirit to be described in such a submissive role? Jesus says, He's just going to bring forth from what I've said. Well, the question just brings up another question. Well, Jesus described His own ministry that way, right? Jesus said, I don't speak on my own initiative. <laughs> I'm not bringing words that come from myself. I'm bringing words that my Father has told me. I'm telling you what my Father told me. And then He says, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you what I told you. Well, how does that work? Well, it's clear that there is only one God and that He exists as three co-eternal, co-equal persons. Yet the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son who submits to the Father. There are distinctions in role and work within the Godhead. Yet that in no way diminishes the complete and total deity of each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think by comparison, this is really helpful even in a practical way. And I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before. I believe the truth of the Trinity is really helpful in talking about male and female roles within the home. How is it possible for two people to be equal and yet have roles of submission and authority? How is that possible? Well, the question brings us to a contemplation of the Trinity. 
For in the Trinity we have three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet utter submission, the Son to the Father and the Spirit to the Son. This is how we know that while a woman is called to submit to her husband, Ephesians 5.22, yet as Galatians 3.28 says it, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Our value, our personhood, we are equal. But there can be distinctions of role and diversity of function and role one with another. By God's design, those relationships just mirror, in some sense, in a much lesser sense, the divine perfections of the Trinity. One other thing I just mentioned quickly, it goes right alongside of that. One reason why, another final reason you might not be able to bear something is because you're limited in your ability to live out truth. Human or sinful weakness might prevent us from applying truth. Jesus could be saying to his disciples that further discussion will not have the consequence of leading them to true submission and obedience. So the further implications are going to be held until a time when those things would prove effective. All of this, I just say, just once again shows how considerate and compassionate Jesus is. He knew the condition of his disciples, and he didn't press upon them further things that they were not ready yet to receive. Certainly, we can learn so much from the master teacher and how he handled people. How often have we tried to press an agenda on someone that they're not ready to receive it for any one of those other reasons? And perhaps we need to address those other reasons before we press further on to what we want to share or teach. It is appropriate for our words to be fitted to the spiritual maturity of our hearers. Listen to it. 1 Corinthians 3.2 I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. This is like him saying, you were not bare. You could not bear it. You were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, he says, Paul says to the church in Corinth. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, similarly, chapter 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Again, the Holy Spirit is the one that would bring these matters to his disciples' attention when it was the right time, and then he would also empower obedience. Now, this fact prompts Jesus to explain why it is that he will not be present to teach them these further things and the procession coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, a little while and you'll no longer see me. And again, a little while and you'll see me. Now, we, there's a little bit of debate as to exactly what Jesus is talking about here. But certainly everyone agrees, at least on some level, that this little while and you won't see me is a reference to his coming crucifixion. A little while and you will not see me. You know, Jesus is saying, like, a few hours and you will not see me. I will die and I will be buried. And then a little while and you will see me. I think certainly this is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. There are others that say that this may even push further towards latter parts of history. But if we take little while and little while in the same sort of sense, in that same little context, I think Jesus is saying, a little while I'm going to die and a little while you'll see me again. Now, why does he say all of this? Remember, disciples struggling with sorrow and heartache and difficulty. So Jesus here is making another statement that's going to evoke dialogue among the disciples. Jesus is a master teacher. He is evoking the questions that he wants to teach. He says this statement, and the disciples instantly are talking to one another. What does he mean by this? What is he after? You see how he, he elicits the question before he answers it. And even when he answers it, he doesn't answer it directly. So Jesus is he's always causing them to inquire further, wrestle further with this. After some conversation, the disciples say, we don't know. You see that? Now there's humility. I don't know. The, the word metanoia in Greek, meaning repentance, has come to a place where I'm wrong. I don't know. I admit my ignorance. I need, I'm in need of help. When a person's there, now they're ready to learn. Now you're ready to learn. When you admit you don't know, now you can learn. And this is where the disciples come. Now Jesus knows that they desire to ask for clarification. 
but they're being timid about asking for it. And so he, yet again, reveals his supernatural knowledge of what they are discussing amongst themselves. And then he tells them exactly what they're seeking understanding regarding. He says, is this what you're asking? Is this what you're wondering about? Is this your dialogue? But then, when he gives his answer, he doesn't even answer it directly. Instead, he speaks to the impact that his going and coming would make on the disciples. He had said earlier in ministry and prepared his men for this coming reality. In Matthew 9, he said, you know, the attendants of the bridegroom can't mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can he? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they'll fast. Remember, this, this all came out of these people were questioning, why aren't your disciples fasting and mourning? And Jesus says, how can, how can my disciples fast and mourn while I'm with them? Have you ever been to a wedding? And there's all the groomsmen and there's the food set out, and they're like, no, I'm fasting. I'm, going to be, I'm just going to stay out of all the food today. No, I mean, it's a celebration. It would be an insult to the bridegroom for the, for the uh, groomsmen to refuse eating on that day. Jesus says, now's not the time for that. But there's coming a day where they will. There's coming a day where they will experience great sorrow. He's been preparing them for this, although they still don't quite get it. But you see, some joy only comes through sorrow. Some joy only comes through sorrow. Even should this strange language not give them what they hope for at the moment, their present confusion and coming grief are going to be soon swallowed up with joy. They will soon lament and weep while the world rejoices, Jesus says, but then their grief would be transformed into joy and delight. The nightmarish hours that are ahead of them will soon be forgotten in light of the fairy tale come true to follow. How is it possible for those emotions to be so quickly on the heels of one another? He uses the word here, grieve, and that word is typically associated with mourning for reason of death. So appropriate. So talking to Christian, Christian and Seth last couple of weeks, talking through lamentations. Jesus says here, you will sorrow, you will lament, you will grieve. This is not just that, oh yeah, I'm kind of sorry about that. This is like deep wrenching, throw you on your back, utter what has happened. Remember, for a lot of these men, they're still confused about what the nature of Jesus' Messiahship means. Common interest and thought was that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. And we're, we're right here with the king. It's going to be all set up and handled how does death figure into that? He says, you're going to be knocked on your backs. You're going to be in dust and ashes. You're going to be weeping and mourning and lamenting. But then a little while, Jesus says, and you will experience joy. You will experience everlasting joy. Joy that can never be taken away from you, joy. That's the best kind of joy. The joy that can never be taken away from you. Certainly you've all experienced joys and had them taken away from you. Jesus speaks of a joy that cannot be lost. And to do it, he provides a little analogy to which mothers have unique insight into, and midwives. But certainly everyone who's ever witnessed a birth can also nod knowingly regarding it. Now, I've never obviously carried a child inside of me before. I know that I do not know what the difficulties of any pregnancy are usually like. And um, dads, if you have any pregnant women, never tell them you know what they're feeling. Don't ever say that at all. You do not know what they're feeling. And I certainly don't know what they're feeling. I also know, though, that each woman can experience different and unique joys and pains as it associates to pregnancy and birth. But something that is quite universal is what Jesus points to in order to ground His point. When the time for giving birth has come, it is not for no reason that we say the mother is in labor. I've had the joy of watching all four of our children come into this world in our own home and seeing how very strong my wife is through the laboring and birthing process. But no matter what, there is certainly pain and there is certainly hard work. When the hour has come, there is grief. There is hardship. There may be tears. 
there will be exhaustion. But whenever the baby has been born, things are suddenly so different. There's been identifiable moments with my wife. It's usually just just after. So I have the privilege of catching the baby. And mom's there too. And catching the baby and giving the baby to Leah. And it's, it's usually within, I can almost, I'm like watching for it. Now, after by the fourth one, I was like really watching. Like her face goes from, oh, this is tough. And a smile starts to crack on the side of her face. And it's all better. And sometimes there's horrible afterbirth pain and all kinds of other stuff. It's not like as if she's out of the woods. But everything is better. Everything is better. Holding that little baby in your arms. Everything is better. The serious and strenuous face, which is appropriate to the task just seconds before, is erased. It's gone. As a smile comes over her whole entire face. The labor was very painful, but the joy that follows it is of such a nature that the pain is now all worth it. It's all worth it. In some sense, it's not worthy to be considered in light of the delight that is experienced when the new little wife has entered the world and joined our family. It was worth it, and it's nothing compared to the joy that is experienced now. What's more... That delight and joy to be had with the coming of a newborn baby provides new perspective to the suffering of labor. The very situation which was a cause for immense and overwhelming pain and suffering is viewed afterward as a reason for tremendous glory. The note then is sung all the more beautiful when we contemplate the work of Jesus. His death was a source of deepest grief. Yet now knowing that Jesus subsequently rose from the grave victorious over sin and death, transforms the symbol and suffering and pain into sweet exultation. Paul even says in Galatians 6, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the glorious resurrection of Jesus is such that it even transforms the symbol of a cross. The cross is now glorious. The cross is now beautiful. Because of the joy that follows. Labor Baby giving birth to babies is is glorious because of the joy that follows. It is the foundation of our joy such that sorrow is transformed into the greatest delight. So Jesus connects the soon coming soon coming experience for the disciples to that of the mother. They would also now have pain and grief, but Jesus would see them again and their hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from them. Their temporary sorrow will be replaced with unending, irremovable joy. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. In closing, I just want to note that Jesus' use of analogy here has historical precedent you heard in the two scripture readings before mine, hopefully, there's a reason why we do the readings that we do. Hopefully you kind of noted that common analogy of a woman in labor. We read one from Isaiah and one from Micah, and both were describing the idea of pain and suffering coming. And meanwhile, especially in Micah, a note of coming relief and joy that would come from the Lord. Again, just for your reference, it's Micah 4, 9, and 10, and Isaiah 26, 16 through 21. You can look those up again later and, and contemplate them in light of this. But you'll see all kinds of correlations. The subject's the same. The woman's in labor. The phrase, a little while, has happened. But in Isaiah, the labor gives birth to mere wind. Israel was not capable of bringing forth deliverance. There's something lacking. You go through all the labor, and then you give forth wind. There's no true deliverance. It makes us think there must be a greater deliverance to come. There must be a true and coming deliverance. The Lord's appearance in the events was a just judge, full of indignation, punishing sinners for their iniquity. But Jesus now says that the painful, grief-filled labor that they are about to experience will be followed by joy. How is this? Because in this case, Jesus Himself is the one who will bear the reproach of sinners. He would suffer in their place. 
He would give birth to true deliverance. He would bring forth abundant, eternal life. For He had come not to judge, for the world already stood condemned. He came to save. Now was dawning a new age. His passion, His death, and His resurrection would change everything. So Jesus tells His disciples, you'll have pain, you'll suffer, but you'll see Me again, and then you'll rejoice. And no one will be able to take that joy away from you. Kill Me if you want. You can't steal My joy. Leon Morris said, the thought is not, of course, that believers will never sorrow. It's rather that after they have come to understand the significance of the cross, they will be possessed by a deep-seated joy. A joy independent of the world. The world did not give it, and so the world cannot take it away. The world moves every day one step closer to the loss of all of their fleeting happiness. Because all of it is momentary and fleeting, but we who are in Christ can endure persecution and hardship, for there are, they are but a moment, and our joy will be ours forever. In this world, you're going to have pain and suffering and trials, but in Christ, there is everlasting joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You, Your Father, for the glorious joy that we have in Your Son, Jesus. Without Him, all we have is fleeting happiness and meaningless pain. But in Him, we have sorrows, yes, but there's purpose in sorrow. There's purpose in trials. There's purpose in suffering. You number our tears. You know exactly what we're going through. And You who has taken the greatest atrocity ever committed, the crucifixion of Your Son, and brought from it the greatest deliverance ever imaginable certainly can take the pain and suffering that we experience and use it for Your glory and for our joy. Lord, I pray that we will have that perspective. And that every time we think of a woman giving birth, we think about the joy of a new baby coming into this world, that we would be reminded of our greatest joy. That joy that will never be taken away from us, which is found in Jesus and Him alone. Lord, I beg You that even this morning, should there be someone who does not know this unending joy, that You would grant them eyes to see and hearts to believe. We pray they would cry out to Jesus, for we know all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray in His name. Amen.